Thanks for that, Kaylee. And uh, I want to begin with one more congregational shout-out as in a way, because uh, I want to start by congratulating the Wildcats on their big victory yesterday. Do we have any of the Northwestern football team here with us? Go ahead and stand up, guys. Yeah. Exciting stuff. They've got Notre Dame, undefeated Notre Dame this week, so work's cut out, but great job, guys. Congrats on that. All right, back to the Bible. We're finding that the book of Jonah, far more than a mere historical account of a recalcitrant prophet of yesteryear, is a book that stings because it's a book that exposes every single one of our hearts. That's because at the end of the day, we are Jonah. The only question is whether we're willing to admit that or not. Indeed, the first week we saw in chapter 1 how our hearts were laid bare in the heart of Jonah. For as Jonah's heart was exposed by God's call to go to Nineveh and was contrasted with the responsive pagan sailors who were willing to heed and honor God as he deserved, so our hearts were revealed as well as people who continually flee from the Lord in various ways. And last week we saw in chapter 2 how our hearts were further revealed in the sign of Jonah. For even though Jonah was thankful for the, the lengths to which God went to save him, uh, he still didn't grasp the depths from which he needed to be saved, right? And the truth is, neither do we. Last week, we were reminded of the lengths God was willing to go to to save us in Christ, even though we are often so blind to how desperately we needed God's grace, we still need that grace, and how desperately we will need it all the way to glory, right? We don't see that in the way that we should. And now in chapter 3, as we cross the midway point of the book, we're going to find our hearts even further revealed, even further exposed in the message of Jonah, okay? It's like we've already begun to sort of feel the burn in a way, uh, and guess what? The temperature is about to get turned up another notch, okay? The warm-up is over. Uh, are you ready? <laughs> well, what we're going to find in this chapter is that as God's people, we are called to have hands and hearts that are responsive to God's Word. As God's people, we are called to have hands and hearts that are responsive to God's Word. And we're going to see this borne out in the text this morning by examining the various responses of the three main characters of the book. Jonah's response to God's call, the pagans' response to Jonah's message, and God's response to the pagans' repentance. Okay, that's where we're going. And you remember that where we left the story last, Jonah, after spending three days in the belly of the great fish, had just been pleasantly vomited up out of that fish and back onto dry land at God's command. So let's see what happens next. Turn again, look at verses 1 through 4 and the response of Jonah here. As we look at those first few verses, what should strike us more than anything else as we read them is that if you feel like you're having a deja vu moment here, it's because you are, okay? The language of chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 is exactly the same as chapter 1, verse 1. We're, we're sort of going back to the beginning. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Yes, we have heard that before. Yes, this is Jonah's second chance, his recommissioning. 
And yes, in this case, we can call it a comeback. The word of the Lord comes to him a second time. Despite Jonah's best attempts to forfeit his credentials to be God's representative to this pagan city. And actually, when I read this part of the text, I I find myself thinking about a certain aspect of my childhood that can be summarized in two words. Video games. I guess I better explain that one. See, when I was young, my brother and I would play a lot of video games. My parents will willingly attest to that. But you know what the beauty of video games are? If early on in the game, my brother and I accidentally jumped off a cliff or fell into some lava or accidentally missed that vital potion for defeating the big bad boss, do you know what we would do? We'd hit the reset button, right? We'd hit the reset button and all of a sudden, we were right back to where we started with another life and another try. Well, this is Jonah's undeserved and graciously given reset button here. It's his chance to start afresh and respond in the way he failed to earlier. I mean, talk about grace. And, and while we might be tempted to even say something like, yes, yeah, because Jonah serves the God of second chances. Have you ever heard that? I want to remind us of the lesson we've already learned in chapter 2. The truth is, Jonah, along with all of us, don't need just a second chance. We need a million chances. We need an infinite reset button. Even though that's the case, God is still so merciful to pursue us, save us, and recommission us in the Christian life, even though we fail again and again and again. And somebody, I think, really needs to hear that this morning. I don't know who you are, but but somebody in this room needs to be reminded that because of the powerful work of Christ who loved us and was faithful for us when we failed to respond to the word as we should, we are always given that next opportunity, that fresh start, always. Now, someone might say to this, you know, that's promoting cheap grace, the idea that we can just sin and sin and sin and then just flippantly turn to God and hand him a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? But that's not at all what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is recognizing how deep the grace which God has shown us in Christ really goes. How high a price he paid, so no matter how many times we've failed, he always takes us back into his loving arms. The father receiving and then recommissioning the returning prodigal son or daughter again and again and again. Of course, the proper response to this costly grace is growth in godliness, not continuing unconcerned and unrepentant in our sin, right? That doesn't make sense. Well, here, this prodigal, Jonah, is recommissioned now by God's grace, and this time he obeys, which for Jonah, given his track record, is is a pretty big deal, right? Now, granted, this is in part because Jonah has now realized that fleeing from the Lord And his calling is an utter impossibility, right? And leaves you in a fish belly timeout for three days to think about what you've done. Sorry, that's my parenting experience uh, coming through there. But I mean, that that said, we want to celebrate the small victories here, right? And the small victory on display here is that this time Jonah responded to the Lord's call to go to Nineveh, a city that's described in verse 3 in the ESV as an exceedingly great city, Three days' journey in breadth. Now, let's take a look at that a bit more. 
We're going to learn in chapter 4 that there were around 120,000 inhabitants in Nineveh at that time, a figure that's only about 125th the population of Chicagoland. Okay? So not exactly a metropolis by our contemporary standards, right? But we have to remember that in the ancient world, such a figure would have been considered stunningly large, massive. And, and what do we make of that odd description of the city, that it was three days' journey in breadth? Well, remember how we said last week that the message of Jonah is largely in the details? I would argue that this is a detail that actually matters for understanding more about Jonah's heart amidst his outward obedience. Right? So I'm asking you to stick with me for a second while we look at something that, that bears more significance than one might assume at first sight. Okay, I promise there's a payoff. So first of all, we know from archaeology that the text couldn't be saying it took Jonah three days to walk straight through the city. Okay? It just wasn't that big. So that's not what's going on. One thing it could mean is that the, the city was so big it took someone, in, the case, in this case Jonah, three days to sort of walk through it winding up and down the streets, seeing all the sights, so to speak. It would be like telling people that it takes three days to see Milwaukee, right? That is, to do everything you really want to do, okay? That's, that's one option. Another option is to see this three days in the city is its surrounding area, right? We know cities have these sort of sprawling suburbs to them, so what might be in view on this is saying, you know, it, took, it takes three days to go through the city and all the surrounding population, okay? That's option two. But I'm most convinced that what the text is likely saying here is what we would, what would have been the appropriate diplomatic protocol for the day. Okay? The expectations of a foreign representative coming to this city for an official visit from another land, which is what Jonah is doing. Now stay with me here. I know that might sound strange to us initially, but actually we have the same sort of diplomatic protocol today just like they had back then, right? If the U.S. sends a diplomat to a foreign dignitary to deliver some official message on behalf of our government, the visit, the diplomatic dealings have to conform to a certain protocol for it to go well, right? Especially if there's a desire for the foreign country to respond positively to the message, right? Things need to be done sensitively. And this is why I prefer the third interpretive option here, for it brings out that what's actually happening here is that Jonah is thumbing his nose at the protocol of what was expected when an official representative would come and visit a city like Nineveh. A protocol that actually centered on ancient expectations of hospitality. See, a city that required a three-day visit would mean something like this. The first day of the visit was for arrival, getting settled, initial greetings. The second day was for the primary purpose of the visit, the business meeting, as it were, where the main message was shared. And then the third day was for saying proper goodbyes and having a proper send-off. Does that make sense? Now, if this is what the text is saying, it seems to me that this detail is subtly communicating some of the ways that Jonah still doesn't get it. No surprise. Ways that Jonah's heart is still not where it should be, even though he's responding outwardly to God's call, right? See, as chapter 4 will make abundantly clear, Jonah is still unwilling inwardly, even as he is conforming outwardly to what God has commanded him to do. He's still half-hearted 
in his effort to obey the Lord and proclaim his message to this pagan city. How is that hinted at here? Because, see, Jonah doesn't wait for the second day to deliver his message. The appropriate day, given the ancient protocol for a city like Nineveh. He doesn't go through the formalities of earning a hearing in this very foreign nation that wasn't exactly on good diplomatic terms with with Israel, right? They were enemies. Instead, he bursts on the scene, and as it says in verse 4, on the first day of his arrival, he just begins belting out his message to any and all who would hear him, seeming to throw appropriate preparations and strategic considerations out the window. Now, why would he do that? Because, again, chapter 4 makes clear that Jonah doesn't want Nineveh to respond to this message. He doesn't want them to repent. And so, doing things in a way that gains a better hearing doesn't make sense to him. And this is actually reinforced by the words that Jonah is proclaiming upon his entry into the city. Our text says that Jonah comes in and blurts out with the finesse of a rhinoceros, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Right? It's pretty blunt, to the point kind of message. In fact, in Hebrew, it's only five short words. We don't know if Jonah elaborated at all, but based on what we have here, we might conclude that this was perhaps the most underwhelming, least persuasive sermon in the history of preaching. If I dare to say that during a sermon, I realize might be in danger of the same. Now, before we go on to examine the response of the pagans to this ironic message in the shortest sermon ever delivered, we do well to pause and think about Jonah's response just a bit more here. He's got some heart issues, no, no doubt about that. We're going to get to those in chapter 4. But in light of the unbelievable, and as we'll see, largely undesired response that this sermon is about to receive, I think we need to see here a clear call for us to respond with obedience when God calls us by his word to do something. Doesn't he know best? <laughs> I think a very simple yet profound question helps us get at what we really need to consider in light of this text. Are you ready? I think the question is, so what's your Nineveh? Right? What's your Nineveh? What is God calling you to do? Where is God calling you to go that seems to you right now like an absolute impossibility? Or maybe something you just downright don't want to do and are completely running from. What is it that God has told you in his word to be about that you're still fleeing from? What's the thing or the person or the place that God has laid on your heart and called you to engage that you would, well, if you were really honest, rather die than go to do? I ask you this in light of the success that we're about to see unfold before us, not because Jonah's heart was perfect and in exactly the right place, far from it, right? but because he obeyed and God was at work in him, through him, using him for his kingdom purposes, despite his heart. See, because by asking, what's your Nineveh, we're also essentially asking, what's the thing if we obey that call? We have the opportunity to see God break down sin patterns and idolatries and divisions and strongholds in mind-blowing ways. We're asking about the opportunity. To put the question more forcefully and perhaps more uncomfortably for us, we could also ask it like this. 
Who are your Ninevites? Who are our Ninevites? Who are the people that, though you, you might never say it so baldly, right, are the folks you think are, are furthest from Christ, the folks that you look on in your heart of hearts you despise, the folks that are your enemies in a certain sense of that word, right? Who are the people it's hardest for you to love, hardest for you to hope will find the grace and compassion of God because of history or bad blood or stereotypes or personal biases you can't fully explain? I'm willing to bet that after yesterday's deplorable and tragic synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, that anti-Semites and neo-Nazis have jumped up to the top of that list. They're on my list. I have to admit, it is hard for me to long that such hate-filled people will find forgiveness in the blood of Christ, much less go to them with that message, right? Build relationships with them that that message would be shared. I'm willing to bet there's a group of people who are your top Ninevites. And that the Spirit is trying to get your attention today to say to you, God, God's grace calls you and me to cross those barriers and to reach out to those who are far from Christ with His love. That's not going to be comfortable. We're not going to want to do that. But there's a call here to live in light of grace, to live in light of the gospel, to respond EBF, we're called to respond to God's word with hands and hearts, obeying him even when it's difficult. So let's ask God to reveal our personal and corporate Ninevehs and Ninevites to us. I think that's a first step of response to the book of Jonah. But for now, let's go on and look at verses 5 to 9 for the climax of the story and the response of the pagans. That response in brief is this, the city does the impossible. They repent and respond in mass to the message of God's unwilling prophet. It's perhaps the deepest irony of the book of Jonah that a message Jonah intended to deliver in the most offensive, least compelling way possible has such incredible reception. Actually, incredible doesn't cut it. It's more than unbelievable. It is miraculous. In fact, it is supernatural. The hand of God clearly at work among us, causing people to comprehensively respond to a message that certainly didn't appeal to the natural human heart. Jonah preached this message from the first moment he arrived on the scene, half-hearted, intentionally offensive, and possibly unwilling to elaborate, and it didn't matter. The people of Nineveh, a pagan an idolatrous city known for its evil and violence. They believed God. And under the direction of the king called for a citywide fast, an expression of repentance that they might not experience destruction. That's what happened. And this is all the more clearly incredible if we remember how unlikely this would have been given that this is a Hebrew messenger. Right? These people, the Hebrews and the Assyrians, I mean, to call them enemies would be a vast understatement. Tim Keller helps us to envision just how unlikely it would have been for the Ninevites to respond to the message of a Hebrew. 
He says it would have been something to the equivalent of a Jewish rabbi walking the streets of Berlin in Nazi Germany and proclaiming that the Reich needs to repent of its violence, oppression, and genocide, or it will be overthrown by God in a fortnight. Now, I mean, that's a stunning picture, isn't it? I mean, humanly speaking, how long do we think a rabbi proclaiming such a message would, would even be able to last on the streets of Berlin like that? Do we have any reason to think that any Nazis, much less the highest-ranking official, yes, that would have been Hitler himself, would have responded with anything other than mocking dismissal and murderous retribution? <laughs> of course not. Can there be any doubt then that what is happening here is nothing less than the Spirit of God dramatically at work, enabling them, a pagan idolatrous people, to hear from an enemy the message of a foreign God about what they needed to do. I mean, the hand of God is all over this thing. We have to see that. Verse 5 says, The greatest of them to the least responded. The whole city, from the highest official to the lowest beggar, believed God and repented. And then as if that wasn't unbelievable enough, we get a description of what transpired among the highest officials, the ones who we least expect to give concern to some, some crazy Israelite prophet rolling in the town, right? We're told that when the word reached the king himself, he began an elaborate ritual demonstrating humility and mourning, all as an expression of deep-seated repentance. This act of humiliation would have been one thing for a peasant or someone for a lower class to do, but for the king, for the king, such a response is really unheard of in the ancient world. For the king of such a large city to openly put aside his regal grandeur and clothe himself with sackcloth and ashes was no small thing. And the nobles join him, it says, calling upon every person and beast in the area to fast from food and drink and cover themselves that they might be able to better call out mightily to God. As if all that was enough, look at the end of verse 8 again. The call is, let everyone turn from his evil way from the violence that is in his hands. Of all the aspects of this description, this would have been the hardest for the original listeners to believe. Assyria, the nation that Nineveh was a part of, was known for being an especially brutal nation one that actually reveled in violence done to smaller nations like Israel. In fact, the particulars of their barbarity are, are so atrocious, I, I can't even begin to describe them here. They're so brutal. They were the worst of the worst when it came to egregious disregard for human life, especially in its most vulnerable forms. Okay? We are talking about deep, deep, deep evil here. Yet they turn from that violence in ways that would have floored those who knew anything about the kind of torturous tactics these people were known for. And in all this, as verse 9 makes clear, the Ninevites did not presume upon God and his character. Did you see that? Look at what it says. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger that we might not perish. All these corporate acts of repentance, nobody was assuming it was a foregone conclusion that the Lord will turn and decide not to bring the destruction he threatened. These pagans know the orthodox truth that God's arm can't be twisted. 
and that the sovereign Lord of the universe will do as he sees fit. In a world where the goal of such religious acts was to manipulate the gods into doing what you wanted them to do, these pagans demonstrate an amazing grasp of who the God of Israel is, the sovereign one who can't be bought or domesticated. The whole situation is mind-boggling. It is so beyond description, I strain to think about an analogous situation in our own world. The closest I can come up with would be something like, it would be like the Taliban issuing a decree over public airways that fully acknowledged the error of its ways and called all of its members to neither eat nor sleep until they had surrendered their weapons of destruction, abandoned all plots of terrorism, and sought the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins that's found in him alone. That would be something like what we're talking about here. That's the nature of this extreme, unreal repentance before us. One of the greatest spirit-led responses to the divine word ever recorded is right here. It's a wonder for us to behold the power of God and his word manifesting among such an idolatrous people. If we can really see it, it's amazing. And we see this call clearly when it comes to Jonah, right? Right? I mean, as we've acknowledged before, it's ironic that Jonah is given a call to go and preach a message of repentance, for we have yet to see Jonah himself repent of the ways he's disobeyed God, right? There's still this inherent contrast going on here. Just like Jonah was shamed by the pagan sailors of chapter 1, so now Jonah is shamed by the quick and genuine repentance which the city inhabits and embodies. And in many ways, the entire nation of Israel would have been shamed by this act of nationwide repentance. After all, how many times did God send his prophets, one after another after another, to his own people, calling them to repent, and yet they would not? But the ultimate question here is, once again, what about us? What about us? Do we hear the call today? Do we feel the sting as we should? Do we feel the inherent rebuke of this idolatrous pagan city repenting in mass upon hearing the word of God proclaimed? Because the text is calling us to take one from the Ninevites book here. It's calling us by God's grace to become a people who are quick to own our sin and repent of it before God and others in ways that have the appropriate action to accompany it. And believe me, I'm, I'm under no illusion that this is an easy task that we're talking about. That we'll just immediately respond and repent as we should because we've been reminded to do so. But EBF, when this happens, when repentance is manifested among us, it is like an atomic bomb of grace going off. It is a powerful, infectious thing. I saw it modeled in our ethos community just last week. We had barely begun our discussion of Jonah when one group member just came right out and said there was something that they needed to repent of. And and they did, right then and there, unprompted. (laughs) Whoa. I got to say that the rest of our conversation was very different after that. It was so much easier for all of us then to be honest, vulnerable, 
about where we were struggling, what, what sins we needed to recognize and repent of, right? It opened the doorway for that. And this text, this text has those implications and, and other implications for those who are leaders in various contexts, whether it be in this congregation or in another setting. I mean, look at the king and the nobles setting the tone of humility and repentance for the rest of the city. What a rebuke they are to those who would presume to lead God's people or any other group for that matter out of prideful arrogance. Leaders of others, especially of God's people, are called to be quick to respond to God's word with a soft heart and to be even quicker to repent. In fact, I agree with the sentiment that goes all the way back to Richard Baxter, a 17th century Puritan, who says that leaders are to be first and foremost the chief repenters. The chief repenters. So I'd want to ask, where are you a leader? We're all a leader in some arena. And what kind of leadership are you modeling there? Is it one where there's freedom and encouragement for people to own their mistakes and wrongdoings? Or is it one more characterized by fearful hiding from one another? keeping the mask of self-righteousness firmly in place. Again, I know this is no easy task for any leader to be the chief repenter, to die to pride and the temptation to look perfect and instead acknowledge that you too have much need of grace. It's a battle to repent for everyone. It's a battle that's only won by those who truly understand that they are sinners saved by grace alone. And that's why I'm so glad this chapter ends on a verse which shows us the response of God to the Ninevites' repentance, giving us a picture of how God responds to any who repent and turn away from their sin for the first time or the millionth time. Okay, look again at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. What a picture of grace and the gospel we have in one verse. For as the Ninevites acknowledged, this was not a tit-for-tat exchange, right? They knew that if God relented of the disaster their sin deserved, it wouldn't be because they forced God's hand. It would ultimately be because God chose to have mercy on them, undeserved mercy. That's what mercy is, right? You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. This message, as we'll see in the climactic chapter 4 next week, scandalized Jonah to the bone. It scandalized him because by the grace of God, the Ninevites of all people had indeed turned from their sin. And so God saw fit not to bring judgment upon them. Because of his grace alone, God determined to grant repentance to the Ninevites and then respond to that repentance with sovereign mercy, not bringing destruction on the people who deserved it and knew they deserved it. The clear picture set forth for us here is an Old Testament image of the gospel, that God graciously responds to those who call out to him with repentance and ask for forgiveness, the good news. It should prompt us all the more to be a people whose hands and hearts are responsive to God's word when we hear it. 
Why? Because as we saw last week, Jonah and everything that's going on in this little book is a sign. It's a pointer to something much, much greater. In fact, now is a good time to visit the other place Jesus brings up Jonah in his ministry. It's in Luke 11, 29 through 32. It's going to be up on the screen. Now, tune in here because we're hearing from Jesus about what the payoff is of this little book. What is it that we should be seeing in this? The text says, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign of the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Skipping a verse, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented of the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So, while last week we saw Jesus connect himself to Jonah because of the way that Jonah's three days in the deep and his return prefigured Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection for us, here we see Jesus connects himself to Jonah because they were both preaching messages to sinful people who needed to repent. And do you see what Jesus is saying here? Are you following his logic? He's saying, look, we all recognize how unbelievable it was that the Ninevites repented at Jonah's preaching, right? That's a given. Well, guess what? Someone much, much greater than Jonah is here, proclaiming a message of grace and forgiveness and compassion and mercy that is much, much better and way more eternally significant than Jonah's message. That's what's going on in the ministry of Jesus Christ. So what is it that the greater Jonah with the greater message is calling for in terms of response? That's the key question, right? Response. In other words, how does one actually receive the grace and mercy which the Son of God came to offer the world? Or even more simply, how is it that one is saved? By doing exactly what the Ninevites did, whether for the first time or the thousandth time. And that's repent. Repent. Repent of sin. Whether it's the murderous violence of the lawless or the self-righteous judgmentalism of the legalist. Repent. I love the way C.S. Lewis reminds us at this crucial point that this is really the heart of Christianity. He says, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know that they have done anything to repent of, and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. Do you see what Lewis is saying there? This is vitally important. The question before us, before you, before me today, EBF, is this, do you know that you have something to repent of, something that you need forgiveness for. Not right now thinking about your drunken roommate or your abusive father or your racist boss or your pagan coworker or your pluralist neighbor or your faltering spouse or your wayward kids, but right now, do you know? 
Do you feel that? Is that true for you? What is that thing? What is the Spirit of God bringing to your heart and mind in this moment? Don't ignore it. Can you own it? Can you really admit it to God and others without moving into self-justification mode? That's our default mode, right? Get defensive, give excuses. It's not really that bad. And can, can you, with the murderous, idolatrous Ninevites, what company we're in here, respond to God's word as you should and truly repent today? Genuinely repent. Have action in light of that repentance. EBF, this is tough stuff, right? And this is where the rubber meets the road. And the veneer of Christianity gives way to the depth of Christianity that Lewis was speaking of. And if you, like me, need help to respond and repent of sin as we should, well, keep your eyes on the one who said that Jonah was ultimately pointing to him. Keep your eyes on him. Yes, we too live in a wicked generation. We are that wicked generation. And I am that wicked person. I am Jonah. And yet, praise be to God that one greater than Jonah came, preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins that comes in the gospel. Genuinely, praise God for that. So by his grace alone, let's repent of our sin and violence and idolatry and hard-heartedness. Let us grow in grace and put sin to death in light of grace. And let's hear the call of Jonah to respond to God's word as fully and faithfully as the idolatrous pagan city of Nineveh. That's our call. Let's pray for help in that. Father, if we have really heard this word this morning, we are undone. Your word, which is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, always does its work. It doesn't go forth void. It goes forth for a purpose. Pray that that purpose would actually manifest in our presence today, manifest in our community, manifest in our ethos. Communities manifest in our personal families and lives. May we grow by your grace in being a people who respond to your word first and foremost by repenting and by receiving again the grace you've made available to us in Christ. We thank you for that grace. We praise you for it. We live in light of it. You get the glory, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.